You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it, turn to 1 Thessalonians. Kiddos, uh, if, uh, parents, if you want to send them with Miss Ashton and Miss Julie, you are more than welcome uh, to do so. They're going to have uh, a lesson for them this morning. And as the kids are moving and as uh, we are turning into 1 Thessalonians, if you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible, as Pastor Ryan said, because we want to know what God has to say. And not just know what God has to say, but then actually submit our lives to it. It's not just that we hear it, but it's that we respond to it. Because we believe that God has revealed Himself through His Word. And so we're going to continue today in our series through the letters to the Thessalonians that we have titled Hope Shaped Holiness. And what we want to do this morning, if you are not a believer is the, exactly the song that you just sang, is we want to make much of Jesus. And so we don't come to this passage or any other passage like it and tell us what we just should do. Instead, we come to a passage like this and hear it and respond by trusting and submitting to Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And so as we begin, let me read to you another verse that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. In chapter 1 of the letter to Rome, he wrote this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. We don't believe in a religious tradition that is unable to do anything for us. We believe in a religion that is powerful enough not just to save us for eternity, but to actually empower us to live a certain way. And any gospel that has no power for transformation is devoid of Jesus. And so when we come to the Bible this morning, we come to it as a people. If you have placed your faith in Christ as someone who has now been empowered by God to live out the gospel that you've received. This is Paul's whole point. This is his whole argument throughout this first letter. We come now to this spot in the first Thessalonians. What we're going to see is he's talked a lot about who God is, who the church is, what Paul has done for them. And now in light of that, we're now called to live a certain way. But church, may we never come to this as it's a list of commands only to follow instead of a list of commands that shape us into the image of our Savior. So, if we look here in chapter 4, here's what we're going to see. Paul challenges the Thessalonians to please God by refraining from sexual immorality based on God's holiness. We never come to this to find standards that we just can meet. No, the way that we're shaped is to be made into the image of Christ. Made holy as God is holy. And if you are a disciple today, church, we talk about this all the time. Our mission is to make mature disciples who will impact their world for Christ. So what are you to do today? What are you to know 
We can live pure lives, free from sexual immorality, through the power of God who desires our holiness. As I've already told you, the gospel is the power of God. And when we come to it, when we experience it, when we receive it, then it does something in us. It changes us. Just as Paul said in chapter 1 to this church. You've received it and now respond to it. In chapter 2, yes, you are suffering, you, but you receive the word and you do it and you pass it on. The power of God does something in our lives. And praise God that it does. Because we can never meet the standards that God has for us. And that we see here in these verses. And what I also want you to know, church, is that most of us in the room come to this as people who have failed this passage. We don't come to this as people who say, we're doing this all right. Because unless you live under a rock, it's really difficult in our time and place to actually do these eight verses. Am I right? That we live in a culture that's bashing our minds and our hearts all the time. And what we see is that this is not just an issue for us. It's an issue that is 2,000, even thousands of years old. Because we are a broken and sinful people. But there is a solution to the power of God. That we are shaped into His holiness. And so this morning as we walk through these verses, what I want to do is I want to remind us of four ways that the gospel impacts our holiness. Four ways the gospel impacts our holiness. So the first way that the gospel impacts our holiness is this. Remember the gospel powers us to please God. It powers us to please God. And we look there, verse 1, what we're going to see is that we're encouraged. We're encouraged. Verse 1, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. We know that we've moved into a new section because Paul says, additionally then, you, know, you can think about it this way, uh, that in light of or beyond what I've already said, let's continue. And Paul now focuses his attention towards what is the kind of hope that the gospel produces in people. And Paul, once again, he addresses them as brothers and sisters to remind them that they are a part of God's family and therefore a new people. Because you are a part of God's family, there's a standard to live up to. And in this new family that's been bought in the blood of Christ, Paul now encourages them. He asks and encourages them in the Lord. So Paul is not speaking just as a mere man or even a spiritual mentor. Paul is speaking with the full authority of the Lord Jesus as one of his apostles. And Paul encourages them, but more than that, he entreats, he, he urges them, listen to me. He encourages them to hear his words. What does he encourage them to do? We'll continue there in verse 1. He says that you've received the instruction from us on how you should live and please God. As you are doing, do this even more. Right? Continue pleasing God the same way that you have been doing. And Paul reminds them again of the instructions they received. That is the gospel handed down. But also these instructions, they, 
It's ideas used in the military context. They're not just instructions for you to know. They're instructions for us to do. We don't just get to hear them and keep going and keep living the same way. No, we hear them and we do them. The gospel produces change. And it's in these instructions that will help the Thessalonians live and please God. Or think about it this way, to live in order to please God. Our pleasing God is not just some rote obedience. Knowing and pleasing God go together. It's a relationship with God that motivates us to please Him. Again, the gospel goes with word and action. But Paul does not just encourage them to do something new. He says he encourages them to do what they're already doing. Right? This young church was giving it their best, and they were trying to live out the gospel in a way that would what? Please their God. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, do this even more. I know you're doing a good job. I know you're following the gospel, but you got to do it even more. One translation says it this way. You are already living this way, but try even harder. We are called to live a certain way. And oftentimes, we can, we can confuse this in a positive or negative way. The negative way would be that we become a legalist, that we say you have to look exactly like this in order to be accepted by God. That's not what's happening here. Right? A Christian wants you to look more like Christ, but a legalist wants you to look more like them. Notice the difference. Paul calls us not to look like himself, but to, calls us to look more like Jesus. This is not about a list of Pharisees to do or don't lists. This is not about us just completing these. This is less about obeying the law and more about pleasing the lawgiver. The law is what represents God's character and what he gives to us, what's good for us. And oftentimes we make these commands, these laws, i got to live up to this. No, what we have to do is please God. And yes, they help us know how to do that better. But when we make the law of God an idol itself, we become legalists. And we will never, ever be able to live up to these standards without Him. And if our aim is to please God, then we will know that we will never arrive. If we hold God's Word up to our lives, what we will notice is we will never live up to these standards. As I've already told you, we come into this room today with this text as people who have failed but we have a God who shows us mercy and kindness and grace and who offers us to still come and to be welcomed and to be changed. And also this pleasing of God, Paul talks about this again in the, in the book of Romans. In chapter 12, he says, live as a pleasing sacrifice. Your life should be characterized as one that's pleasing God. We come to these verses not to do things, but to please God. We're encouraged to keep on. Keep on pleasing God. But we're also exhorted. We're not just encouraged, we're exhorted. Look there at verse 2. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul's request, that is to live pleasing, is now strengthened in verse 2. He says, they know. Again, Paul, he reminds them of what they already know. What do they know? They know the commands that were given to them. And there are more than instructions that are to be obeyed. 
They're not just a new task list. They're a totally new direction for someone who's placed their faith in Christ. Those once far from God have now been brought near to Him. And now they're entered into His family. And Paul brings it back around to Christ. He says that these commands were given through the Lord Jesus. That means that He is the source and the foundation of these commands. Paul and his team have the full authority of the Lord Jesus here. And we know, as we keep reading in in this passage, but we also know from Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus speaks, speaks directly about sexual immorality. So Paul is not pulling something out of the air. No, we know that Jesus has spoken directly about these things. But you may ask, why can Jesus even give these commands? Because he's God. Because he is the one who which this standard comes from. And not only that, he can, he can command you to do these things, but he can also enable you to do them. It isn't that Jesus says, hey, go do these things, knowing that we will never be able to do them. No, he comes to you, offers you the bet to turn your life, and to say, let me help you do that. That's why he can command these things. He's the one who provides the ability in the first place. And church, let me be very clear. We cannot rely on our traditions or our cultures or our ways of life to make us look any better. We can cover it up. We can hide it. We can try to do the best we can. But at the end of the day, we will never live up to these standards without Jesus. And specifically, the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. We believe that He is God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, who gave His own life on the cross and was raised three days later. This is the Christ that we look to. And understand, church, that it is in this Jesus Christ that our God was fully pleased. If you remember, when Jesus is baptized, God's Spirit descends and the sky opens up. And what does God say? God the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And for those of you who are in Jesus, you are accepted the same way that Jesus is. You please God the same way that Jesus does. If you are in Him and you have submitted your life to Him. We please God through submitting our lives to Christ. It isn't just that we say He's great and cool or He is Lord. No, we submit to Him. We ask Him to change us. We give Him access to every room in our hearts so that He may begin to change and to work and to make us look like Himself. So church disciples are people who are powered to please God because they love Him more than anything else. And they give themselves to Him so that they may live and please God. Just as he desires. Just as he desires. Not only does the gospel empower us, right? Remember that the gospel plots the plan of God. The gospel plots the plan of God. We're going to look here at verse 3. What we're going to see is that there's a plan for sanctification. Look there, verse 3. For God's, for this is God's will, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. In light of Christ's commands and the gospel change that it brings, Paul tells us what God's will is. Often, many of us in the room are like, hey, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? What, am I, what decisions am I supposed to make? And often, we're just looking around, God, what am I supposed to do? 
Paul tells us really clearly right here. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to find it. God's will is this, that you are sanctified, that you are made holy. Right? This is most important, that God desires for you to be holy, for you to look like himself. And this word sanctification is the same word uh, for holiness or in the process of becoming holy. In this context, it means that you are on a journey to look more and more like God. Sanctification began at our conversion, right? And now it's a living reality that it's going to continue because God is the one who is doing it. And church, let me be very clear. We know that God's holiness matters to God. We know this. It is the, it's part of the story of God's people. In Leviticus 19.2, God says this. He says, be holy as I am holy. And then the apostle Peter, he picks up on this idea in his first chapter of his first letter. He wrote this, but as one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. Why? For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There is a command to be holy. Why? Because our God is holy. It's not some arbitrary thing. No, God is holy. And we have a responsibility to become holy. And God has a responsibility to help make us holy. Our conduct and God's will are tied together. And holiness is not only the idea of being separated or being set apart. Although that's what it means. There's more to this. right? There's an important aspect to being set apart. But holiness must first and foremost, is to be about the character of God. That He is other than we are. And that His people that He brings into His family now are different than the world that they are in and what they see. Holiness must be based in the character of God. Right? And so, holiness means that we're conforming ourselves to His character. Right? And also, at the same time, rebuffing or rebuking what is not in accordance with with that character, it's a both and that we both live in these commands and are strengthened by him in these commands. But I want you to notice, church, about the Bible's view of holiness. Right? In Leviticus 19, God absolutely calls Israel to be holy. It's a mark of God's people. Right? But this command to be holy is after they have been saved from Egypt. It's after they have been rescued. It's after they have a relationship with God. Holiness comes after knowing God. This means that the call to sanctification and to holiness is a call to discipleship. It's a call to a relationship with God. The call to holiness is not a call to salvation. When you are saved, what you are saying is that you need to be holy and you are not. And the gospel says, yes, when you submit your life to this God, he will make you holy. So what's the standard? The standard is Christ himself. Paul says that, that he is the standard. That we are being formed into the image of Christ. And when we, look, when we look at the Bible and we think about God, we think, gosh, I could never be like you, ever. 
And often that overwhelms us and it makes it difficult for us to continue. And we get, we get frustrated. We get down on ourselves and we don't know what to do. So before you ever start doing, maybe the best thing we can do, church, is to abide in who God is. That we know, God, you are holy to proclaim it, to think on it, to pray on it. That you actually say to God, you are holy and I can do nothing apart from you. Because if we try to start by doing, we've already started on the wrong foot. But when we ask God, when we abide in Him, when we trust Him, He then makes us look like Jesus. Right? God receives us as we are. We don't clean ourselves up and come to Him. Right? No. We go to Him. We confess our sins. And we ask Him to change us. And He fully welcomes us in. Fully accepts us as we are. But He doesn't leave us as we are. Ever. He brings us in and begins to work and to change and to mold us. Now, God's desire for our holiness is described in a very specific way by Paul. What does he say? That you keep away from sexual immorality. Holiness in Thessalonica is in most danger from the threat of what? Sexual sin. And Paul says to avoid and to abstain from any hint of this. But what is sexual immorality? Well, if we look at Paul and his letters in the New Testament, what, what we mean here is that this is any sexual act or relationship outside of heterosexual marriage. Premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, prostitution, all those things are included in this term. And so we must have no interaction with any of this. Paul says, abstain Keep away from this. Right, this young church has a new sexual ethic. And in Thessalonica, that would be extremely difficult. With the practices of their day, it was completely normal for, for men to be married and have relationships outside of their marriage. Heterosexual or homosexual was completely normal. You just did what you did. Right, and for the homosexual behavior, it would happen all the time. And other perversions of sex like prostitution in their temples. It was normal for someone to be able to go to a temple and get whatever they wanted. And you were, there, um, you were there proclaiming the goddess or the god of that temple. It was extremely normal for them. They could get any kind of sexual material or relationship at any point in time. That's not much different than the time we live in today. Actually, I think the culture we live in today is just as bad. Just as bad. Just as easy. Church, our culture is obsessed with sex. Obsessed with it. Right? So much so that it's tied to our identity now. Now that sex is something that is a part of who we are. But the idol of sex is disguised in the veil of freedom and choice and expression. Freedom, choice, and expression is not the idol. The idol is sex. The idol is that we can get whatever we want, whenever we want it. I'm not sure if you, if you saw, but after the overturning of Roe Ro v. Wade, our vice president was in an interview, and she said, she asked the question, well, do you want your young boys to grow up in a society where they're going to have to pay for the consequences of their actions? That's the question that's now on the table. 
That should we be should we be concerned, more concerned about the consequences of sexual action? Paul says clearly we are to flee. We are to abstain from any hint of this. But instead, our culture says, hold up, time out. Let's do whatever we can do to make sure that this thing can keep on happening. It's easy. We think that it's freedom. We think it's choice and expression. But it, actually, it's the idol of sex. Let, let me be really honest. With you. There's a longing for all of us. That the longing of sexual sin is this. That we can be intimate. Be fulfilled. That we can have a relationship. All good things. All things that God wants for you. But when you take them out of their context, they begin to be distorted. But we're on the negative side, as I just shared with you. It can be about instant gratification. It can be about false freedom and no responsibility or consequences. We live for men. We live in a culture for instant gratification. I don't want to have to work at all. Why do you think that the, the rates of children being born and marriages are going down? Because we have a culture that's telling us you can just get whatever you want with no work and no responsibility involved. That's what, that's what this lie is. And so the longings of our heart are being exposed when we begin to give into these things. Now, from the New Testament and Paul and specifically God, they're not disparaging sex in any way, shape, or form. Right? Sex is very powerful when used in the wrong context. It's destructive. But God takes sex very, very seriously. Why? Because it's a beautiful gift that He has given to His people, to His world. It's a beautiful gift. Now let me be very clear. I think as Christians, as the church in general, we've done a very poor job of how we talk about this. Why would I say that? Because I think we've made sex, and at least in marriage, the holy grail. You wait because this is the best thing in the world. This is, this is what you have to do because it's the greatest thing in the world. And let's, let's take a time out. Because if you've been married for any amount of time, whether it was yesterday or for 40 years, you're going to understand that sex is not easy. It's not just something we just walk into the room and, hey, it's great. Movies are lying to you. If you are young in the room, movies and TV shows are lying to you because it is not easy. Instead, we must show people that sex is a gift, a powerful gift that's given to have a specific context in marriage. But we don't, we don't say wait because it's going to be the greatest thing in the world when you get married. No, it's something you have to work at. It's something you have to, get, you have to give yourself over. Right? The reason we wait is not because it's the best thing in marriage. The reason we wait is because God desires your holiness. That's why we wait. And when we begin to flip and mesh all these things together, then we are going to be confused or at least be frustrated when we get married. Because we think that it's just going to be the greatest thing in the world. And it can be when we understand it as a gift. Right? Sex is to be selfless. And, we, and, and in Thessalonica and in our culture, this is not about being selfless. This is about getting what you want. Right? Sex or our views of it is not outside of what it means to be a Christian. That we are actually being formed and what we think about it is important. The reason we wait 
to have sex before we're married, right, is to be married, and this is the right context, is because we don't find fulfillment in physical pleasure, but we find pleasure in being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. And what he says is what, you, what the church has in common, what we have in common, is a new ethic. We live in a different way. And the way we do that is we have now grounds with God and with each other to continue to be holy. That we have now the, the, the ethic to build a new community in. And it's hard. It's difficult. Parents, you are raising children in one of the most accessible times in history. It's hard. But we can do that together. Now, God's will is, number one, to keep you away from sexual immorality. But how does He accomplish this? Well, look at verse 4. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So now, what Paul does is he gives the plan for self-control. Right? God wants us to know how to control our own bodies. This word for know means that it's a behavior that you know of and that you do it. Right? The gospel doesn't leave any room for truth without, without action. But this is important because God wants us to know how to control our own bodies. It is a lie of sexual sin that you just, I just need to get control over it or any sin. I just need to get control over it. No. That's not how the Bible speaks about it. It isn't that I just need to prove that I can withstand the temptation. No. Paul says to flee, run the other way. Don't put yourself in that situation. You need to run. Right? 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee temptation, flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord. We're called not not just to think I can withstand it, but to actually pursue righteousness and love and faith and peace. You can't just take something and take the whole out. You have to fill it with something. That's what Paul's saying. You have to fill your heart with things of the Lord. Yes, one day you can control your body. But at first you're going to have to flee. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to call people. You're going to have to ask them this week. From, from multiple guys in this room, in a group text, text, hey, I, I need prayer today, fellows. I need prayer. That's what God wants us to do. Because we need to reach out and run, not just from the sin, but run to community, because we can't do this on our own. If you have a TV or a phone, you're going to be inundated with this stuff. And it's a lie for you to think that, I just, I just got to get this under control. That's exactly where the, the enemy wants you. But Paul, he gives us some direction too, right? How to control. He says, with holiness and honor. Holiness, the same word for sanctification in verse 3, is used to define how we live, right? God's will should govern our sexuality. And as we are to live with honor, right? We view other human beings as made in the image of God. Right? We understand that God's word is what shapes how we think and therefore how we act. It's not our feelings, It's not the world's standards. The world right now wants you to think, if you feel this way, then you should act on it. But what's dangerous about that is that you will be led down a road that will ultimately destroy you. And at the core of sexual sin is really selfishness. 
and objectification of others. Right? But if we believe that every person on the planet is made in the image of God, then our beliefs begin to change what we do and how we think and what we, how we see things. And when we notice that our brothers and sisters are made in the image of God, may we be stopped in our tracks from ever continuing to think or ponder or fantasize about things. The way we fight, the way we control is to believe that God has called us to holiness and to believe that God has called you to honor each other. And then he contrasts it in verse 5. Look there. Not just with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Right? Paul now gives the opposite. He says, don't be controlled by these passions. Paul's saying that our passions are the fruit of our desires, which means our desires are lustful. Follow your heart. Every Disney movie ever made. No. Paul says that, no, your desires are lustful. And he contrasts this with the Christian's holiness and the non-Christian's lust. Right? But this comes from what? What does this come from? What does this desire, this lustful desire, come from? Their lack of knowing God. They don't have a relationship with Him. And again, we see this relationship with God to be foundational for our sanctification and our sexual ethic. Let me be very clear. What, what tempts you, what tempts me, is our own selfish desires. But it's not the only thing that tempts us. The world and our enemy, Satan, tempts us. And we have to understand how those things work together and how they're coming against us. And if you're in the room today and you're showing, maybe you're, this is the most uncomfortable time you've ever had in church. But the lie that Satan wants you to believe is that you're the only one struggling. That there's, you are the only one. No one else. If you confess this, people are going to laugh at you. They're going to gossip about you. They're going to turn away from you. And that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. Because the cure to this is not hiding it. The cure to this is confessing it. And when we do that, we begin, James says, we begin to be able to heal each other. It's a lie that Satan wants you to believe that you are the only one. And at the end of the day, the people of God must demonstrate their new community identity through their lifestyle, how we live. The stats are staggering about adultery and pornography use are rampant in the church. It's no different. The stats pretty much say that what happens in the church is the same that happens outside for those who aren't believers. But our, our lifestyle must match what we believe. We must honor and be others-focused. Sex is powerful, so it must be confined to the context it was meant for. But also marriage is not just another place to legalize lust. Right? Sex does... Fellas, let me be very clear with you. Sex does not fix your temptation. Or marriage does not fix your temptation. Getting married changes nothing. If someone told you that, they lied. It does not change you because what's wrong? Your heart is wrong. And we have to begin to be cultivated and cultivate our hearts so that we believe that we are called to holiness and that everyone is made in the image of God and we must honor them. The gospel provides the plan of God for those who have a relationship with Him and they, out of that, can live for Him. Now, this third way the gospel impacts our lives. Remember the gospel protects the people of God. Look at verse 6. 
This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister. Right, so we see that we are not to take advantage. God's people have been described as a family in verse 1 and now again in verse 6. Right, he used these terms, brothers and sisters. They have now been brought into the family of God. And it should stop us because these things are happening between brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to never take advantage. What that means is to never defraud or exploit or, or take advantage of someone. And most of the time this verse is used to talk about adultery and only adultery. But I think in the context, no, it's talking about any kind of sexual sin. And it could be, that could be on Paul's mind that adultery defrauds one's spouse and one's marriage in the church. But Paul ties this to the whole sexual ethic, to the whole community. The community is damaged when we don't live up to the standard that God's Word gives to us. And so I think this is for any sexual sin in the community. right? And there's another lie that no one gets hurt. No one gets hurt. It's just me or it's just us. We're not doing anything wrong. We're not hurting anybody. No, that's not true. What Paul says is there's consequences for our actions even when people don't know it. When you defraud somebody, they don't know what's happening. So even when you think that you're getting away with it, even when you think there's no damage, when you think no one's getting hurt, yes, you are hurting the family of God. Why? Because we are not living up to the standards that God has given to us. But let me provide the light of Scripture to you this morning. Sexual sin defrauds individuals and our community. Right? It breaks down the ethical standards of our church and our witness. And it breaks down the unity of our church. This is why we must practice church discipline. We must do this. And I don't mean it just in a way to exclude people. No, I meant that we call people, we confront people, and we say, this is the sin that we're seeing. we got to deal with this. And as I've told you before, that we've never had to remove somebody from membership, but church discipline has happened. And it's happened around this very issue because we have men who are stepping to the plate and calling each other up. Hey, no, we're called to live to a better standard. So much so that oftentimes me and Pastor Ryan don't even hear about it until weeks later. We must call each other to live this way. But also understand that God is, is an avenger here. Look at that second half of verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses and also as we previously told you and warned you. Paul now directs our attention not just about others, but to God. None of this is based on our ability, and so he focuses our attention on him. Right? He founds our sexual ethic in a present reality with a future consequence. Right? The Lord Jesus is described as an avenger, which means that he's the one that's going to enact judgment. I told you judgment was going to be a theme of these two letters. Right? And God is described as an avenger in the Old Testament, and so Paul assigns that to the Lord Jesus. Right, sexual sin is the subject of God's judgment. And Paul says he has told and warned the church, this isn't new. Paul says, I told you about this, and you must continue in this. You must continue to live out the gospel. Our response must not be rooted in, in, what we, in the past. Our response must be rooted in the future, that our hope is in Christ and His obedience and nothing else. Because the same way, as we've talked about before, is Christ is going to come and judge the world. For those who are in Christ, He's going to come and He's going to welcome us into His family. And we will not have to worry about being judged. We must 
know that our holiness is not based on anything we can do, but only based on the hope that Christ provides. Now, parents, let me speak to you for just a moment. Parents, it is your job to protect your child's purity. It's been entrusted to you, and this is your role. Right? This is a hard conversation. A hard conversation for us to have, especially in today's culture where it's so easy. Right? And often we can hear things like, well, we'll just, you know, normally, like how I grew up, once I had the questions, I went to my parents and I asked them about it. But who taught me before that? My friends at school did. And so then I had questions, I'll go to my mom and dad, and they tell me about sex, and I, you know, then, then everything's fine. But now, kids have access not just to their friends who are making up stuff to begin with, but now they have YouTube, and they have social media that's actually driving what they believe. Your job is to protect your children's purity. We wouldn't just say, you know what, I'm going to let our kids just come to us when they're worried about a fire in the house. No. You're going to teach them this is our fire plan. If this happens and a fire happens, this is how we're going to exit the house. If you can't do plan A, B, or C, this is what you do for plan D. Right? We would never let our children just, hey, you know what? When they're worried about the fire in the house, we'll we'll let them come talk to us. No. We must be parents who actually come and we help form our children. We have have hard conversations. Right? We live in a broken world. And to be honest with you, we live in a militant culture who wants your children to be exposed to this, if we're just really honest about it. We've got to have hard conversations. And I know that our kids are at different ages, and I know that some parents may have conversations at different ages or at different times with their children. And so what we need to do, parents, with each other is to show grace with each other and trust that those kids are entrusted to their parents and these kids are entrusted to these parents. But at the, very, at the basic level, we must say, hey, no, we got to have these conversations together. So that our kids are not exposed, they're not, they're not run over by this, they're not caught off guard, that they know. we got to have hard conversations. But most of the time it's because we're, one, either ignorant or we're not paying attention. As I told you, I know lots of parents right now of high schoolers who are dealing with the fact that their children are believing things because they're watching YouTube. Just because they just don't know about it. They're not thinking about it. But it is your job. It's our job to help our children understand what God's Word says. If you need help with that, we want to help you. We want to provide resources. There's lots of great resources for that. But it is our job to protect our children's purity. We can live pure lives that are empowered by God because we know the gospel and how it speaks to us and how it speaks about others. We know that our hope is not based in something that we've done, but it's based in Christ who will also judge. He will avenge those sins. But look how Paul ends this. This fourth way the gospel impacts it. Remember that the gospel provides the presence of God. Right? God calls us to holiness in verse 7. Look there. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Right? Instead of sexual immorality, which is the opposite of purity, right? instead of it pervading the community in our lives, God has something better for us. Right? God has called us to something more fulfilling. God has called us to something that's better, a summons to salvation, which is purity and sexual purity. It's tied together. And a calling into obedience. Not because we 
want to keep our salvation, but because it's the right response of people who have received the free gift of salvation in the gospel. Our future hope is in Christ and only Him. Holiness is the standard, and God is the Lord of every inch of our lives. Every inch. And we must align our conduct with that lordship. And the solution that's presented to us is not, you know, not separated from our sanctification. Right? God's will, right? our holiness and our hope, is a present and living reality through our sanctification. Right? God's will is actually tied to this. That we not just think that, yes, one day it's going to be better. No, even now, today, you can experience freedom from these things. This is why our mission here is to make mature disciples. Right? That our salvation is worked out through our sanctification. Right? That we grow and we are maturing. The way that we fight sexual sin is to behold and love Jesus more. And that we then pursue our holiness that way. You'll never be able to win if you're only thinking about how do I just beat this? No, we have to love Christ more. But finally, in verse 8 here, it isn't just that we're called to love Christ, we're called to abide in Him. No, there's a way that we can do this. Look at verse 8. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you the Holy Spirit. God sends His Holy Spirit to us. And we look at verse 8, there's a negative context here, right? For anyone who rejects these words, they're not rejecting man, they're rejecting God. There are those who turn away from Him, His instructions and His standards of obedience. But what's beautiful here is that God doesn't just call us to a standard and say, y'all go figure it out. No, He says, let me give you my own self. Let me give you my spirit. And remember, our Christian ethic is rooted in the person and nature of God that's been through this whole passage. The summons to be like Him, to be holy, He now provides the power to live that way. Right? God is the one who supplies. He gives. He sends His Spirit showing us that He accepts us. When you profess faith in Christ, God enables you. He sends His Spirit to you. And now you are enabled to live out these commands. Without His Spirit, we would be just like Israel. Without the Spirit, without God writing His law on our hearts, we would be just like Israel, turning away. And notice, the emphasis here is on the character of God and His Spirit. It's on the holiness of the Spirit. Right? Holiness is not just some virtue or some standard we hold up here. Hey, be holy. No, it's holiness that's coming from God that's being poured into us. God does not just merely defined by His character and standard according to how His followers live. No, He provides the power that's needed to live out this way. Right, I, I read this quote this week. The Christian ethic has its foundation in God, who not only makes His will known, but whose presence is powerful in their lives through His Holy Spirit. We have God Himself. If you are struggling today, be very clear. God does not want you to struggle. God has given you His Spirit if you are in Christ. and He's calling you and just asking you, trust me, abide in me, look to me, and I will make you holy. This is the hope of the Gospel. That we have a God who would send His own Son into the world, 
into the mess, into our brokenness, into things like this. He would live a perfect life. He would then give his life on the cross. He would die, be buried, but then raised three days later. And then he said, anyone who believes in me will have eternal life and an abundant life. But as Jesus goes and as he left his disciples, he said, it's better for me to go. Why? Because I send the helper. I send God's spirit for you and to you. We have hope because our God does not leave us here stranded. He does not leave us to our own devices. He not only saves us, but he helps make us holy together. Will you pray with me? God, I ask that we will be a people who reflect your holiness. I ask that we will be a people that are empowered by your spirit, that we, that we flee sexual morality, and most importantly, that we run to your holiness. I pray that we are encouraged today, but also challenged to live out this. God, we need your help, especially in this topic. Will you please show yourself mighty and strong in our lives and in the life of our church? We love you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.